Okay, thank you. If you want to open up your Bibles uh, to Daniel chapter 12, we are finishing our series through the book of Daniel today. So uh, you may turn there just now and we'll read that together. Okay, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall the outcome of these things? What shall be the outcome of these things, rather? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The message title today is The Time of the End. It's an apt title, I think, because it is the final installation of our series through this book of Daniel. And also, this is a title that's a mini-summary of what our text today calls for us to consider the time of the end. Daniel chapter 12 is the continuation and close of the final vision that Daniel the prophet received. And that vision actually began in chapter 10, all the way back there. Daniel received this vision on the banks of the river Tigris somewhere around 537 BC, after the fall of Babylon, he was visited by this angelic messenger. And this vision that he has, if you remember, deals mainly with future events. So again today, we're looking at God revealing things in the future 
uh, to Daniel, some of which, most of which is past for us, but some of which is still future. And so it deals mainly with two empires that will rise up after the empire of Babylon. I don't know if you remember this. If you don't, please listen back to this, the rest of the series, otherwise this might be a bit confusing. But it deals with the rise of the Persian Empire and of the Greek Empire. And the vision is mainly concerned not just with historical details about those empires, but really with how those empires interact with Daniel's people, the, the people of God, the, the Jewish nation. And I know some of you, as we arrive at the end of this series, have been quietly looking forward to its end and culmination. Uh, but let me say this in its defense. The book of Daniel, when it's properly understood in context, is a wonderful testimony to the sovereignty and the majesty of God. It also serves as a, as a key, as a key to unlocking and understanding the, some of the kind of mysteries of the book of Revelation. And sadly, because people don't really take time to study the book of Daniel, we can end up with all kinds of weird and wonderful kind of understandings of the end times. I don't know if you've come into contact with people who are fanatical about the end times, but I do from time to time. I get messages on social media from end times fanatics telling me that I'm, I'm wrong, that I need to proclaim that Obama is the Antichrist, that Trump is the Antichrist, that Islam is the Antichrist, that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I get these kinds of comments from time to time. And these kinds of understandings are wildly unbiblical. And these believers, I believe, wouldn't arrive at these conclusions if they had studied the book of Daniel properly. A proper understanding of the end times comes from a proper understanding of the book of Daniel. Daniel. So tedious as you may find it working through this book and hearing about 1,225 days and 1,335 days. Yeah, I know. But it will prepare you and help you uh, to understand the times that we're in and also protect you from, from pure fanatical ideas, which are sometimes very appealing to us, especially in difficult times, aren't they? When these ideas come along and you think, yes, that clicks, that seems to resonate with me. I don't like Trump, therefore Trump is the antichrist. We, we can all very much find it easier to, to just jump on board with these bandwagons. But, but ultimately, when we understand these prophetic books of the Bible, it protects us from reading our own concerns into the biblical text. And so in chapter 11, as we covered last time out, we had this vivid prophetic picture of a certain king of the north described as a vile person who will take away temple sacrifices, who will place in there the abomination of desolation. And we know from history that that incredible prophecy was fulfilled already once in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a king of the Syrian empire in around, well, it's the second century B.C., we know that he stopped temple sacrifices. We know that he then sacrificed a pig on the altar, the abomination of desolation. Now, there is debate, I'm going to be honest with you, about this passage of Scripture, about Daniel 12. There is debate amongst scholars as to whether Antiochus Epiphanes is the subject of this chapter or whether it is actually the end time 
Antichrist. Do you remember me saying how Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of Antichrist, like he's a foreshadow, just like Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ. This Antiochus guy is basically kind of a a prototype of what this end-time Antichrist is going to be like. Um, So the reason why some scholars don't think this final passage is actually about Antiochus is because from verse 36 in chapter 11, there are certain things that are prophesied that Antiochus didn't actually fulfill. So he only made two campaigns. This is getting really technical. He only made two campaigns against Egypt, the southern kingdom. The first was successful. The second wasn't. And both of those campaigns are detailed in chapter 11. But from verse 36, it talks about a third successful campaign. But we know Antiochus never actually did that in his lifetime. So some scholars think that the end of chapter 11 must relate to some future character. Anyway, some believe this final chapter points towards the time of the very end. The very end. And so this tribulation that we're speaking of refers more to the tribulation of the end time. Some link it with what Jesus talked about, the abomination that causes desolation, the great tribulation. Some scholars believe that's what we're talking about here. And when you do read this chapter of Daniel, and then you read Revelation 13 together, go home and try that. It is interesting to see some of these things kind of mesh together and link up. So I think, however we look at this final chapter of Daniel... It has to be consistent with the rest of the book of Daniel. And it should be consistent with what we read at the end of Revelation 2. Now, I think if we, as a church, if we hold both Antiochus Epiphanes in mind when we're reading this, and also kind of the future end times in mind, we won't go far wrong if we've got both of those kind of views in our head. That's what the majority of clever scholars think this is about. Personally, um, I find myself drawn to thinking that this final chapter and the end of chapter 11, perhaps, seem to make more sense in reference to the end of human history, to the end of time, to the rise of the future Antichrist, the great tribulation, the return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and and the final judgment. I could be wrong. Um, After all, even Daniel said that he didn't quite understand what he'd seen. But that, to my mind, makes the most sense to me. And it does say in this passage that as the time draws near, the time of the end comes near, we will, as a church, understand more and more about biblical prophecy. So that's my understanding as far as it goes. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And just before we dive into properly understanding this text, this is a great example of how we can go badly wrong understanding Bible prophecy if we're not careful. See, I've had many people say things like this about, I've heard many people say things like this about that text. Well, look, this is a prophecy of airline travel. You see, many going to and fro. It's airline travel and knowledge shall increase. See, that's the internet. Okay, that's the day of the internet and social media. Knowledge shall increase. And you'll have these internet, TikTok, Bible theologians telling you that that's what that verse is about. But I think, brothers and sisters, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Okay, so read this. We find this in Amos, another prophet, 
verse, sorry, chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. It says something very similar. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Do you see how closely that maps onto the verse we've just read? So this running to and fro is not speaking about international air travel, um, this knowledge increasing. I don't think it's speaking about the rise of the internet, but rather it speaks about a, a thirst for the knowledge of God, a thirst for the word of God, and people running to and fro. The Hebrew words there really give us a picture of people frantically searching for something. They're looking for something. And I believe that's talking about in the last days, there will be this thirst again for biblical prophecy. People will be thinking, what on earth is going on? I want to find out what God has to say about these times. Now, I don't know exactly when the end time's going to come. I, I don't think anybody knows when we're going to see a great tribulation. But I do believe the Bible says that there will be one. That's my conviction. And I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. But I do think that as a church, we want to be prepared for these times. And certainly in the last two years, with everything that's gone on, I don't know about you, but I have had this sense of, I want to know what the Bible has to say, and if there's anything that might relate to the times we live in. So we want to be careful not to read in our own beliefs and concerns into the text, but we do want to have a hunger for what the Bible says about our times. So let's look at this time of trouble. This passage begins with speaking about a time of trouble, a time of trouble unlike any troubled time seen before in all of human history. Now, some have thought that this time of trouble is referring to the time of trouble when Antiochus came past Jerusalem. Remember, I spoke about this last time, did awful things to the, the Jewish people. Some people think that's talking about this. However, the church father, a guy, one of the church fathers, a guy called Jerome, he rightly points out that this time of trouble in Daniel 12 is going to last time, times, and half a time, which most people think is three and a half years. So get that in your head. A time, times, and time and a half is three and a half years, most believe. And that same amount of time, time, times, and time and a half, is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation 13, where it says this tribulation is going to last 42 months. Again, three and a half years. So this time period is really crucial. It's really crucial to understanding what's meant here. But Jerome points out that Antiochus's season of persecution from when he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple until the Maccabees came and reinstated worship in the temple. It was only a period of three years, not three and a half. So Jerome and some of the other church fathers, they thought, no, it's not referring to Antiochus. It's referring to some future events, even not even AD 70 in Jerusalem, but some future event, okay? So the difficulty is understanding this, is when people say that it refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, the Maccabees, 
what you then have to do is you have to try and understand what's meant by this resurrection from the dead that's talked about in this passage. Some commentators say that the resurrection that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12 is just, it's, it's just metaphoric. It's not real. It, it's just a picture of the freedom that the Maccabees experienced after they reinstated temple worship. But to me, I'm not, I'm not convinced. It doesn't sound like a, a metaphoric resurrection. It sounds like it's describing what the book of Revelation describes. It sounds like the resurrection of bodies from the dead. So that's my opinion. I think this is referring to something future. This time of trouble, we also read, is going to mean persecution. It's going to mean a real worldwide persecution of God's people on the earth at that time. The church father, a guy called Hippolytus, said, There shall be a time of trouble. At that time, there shall be great trouble, such as not being from the foundation of the world, when some in one way and others in another shall be sent through every city and country to destroy the faithful. And the saints shall travel forth from the west to the east and shall be driven in persecution from the east to the south, while others shall conceal themselves in mountains and caves. And the abomination shall war against them everywhere and shall cut them off by sea and by land and by his decree and shall endeavor by every means to destroy them out of the world. That, that decree, he means, of the Antichrist. That's Hippolytus. So we're talking about an unimaginable amount of suffering at the end time for God's people. Worse than even that of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Worse even, if you can imagine, than the dark horrors of the Holocaust. This is a terrible time of suffering for those who are gods on the earth at the end. But amidst that, we read of the archangel Michael standing up. That's what it says. He stands up. The archangel Michael is an angelic being who is given a remit, a remit to protect the saints of God, the chosen people of God, both covenant people of Israel and God's church. And he's standing up. He's on guard. He is attentive. He's fighting on behalf of God's people. I think this is wonderful, brothers and sisters. I think, again, this shows us that God commands his angels concerning his people. In times of great distress, in times of suffering, God sends angels. He commissions angels to strengthen God's people, to give them courage, to ensure that whatever happens to them, their faith doesn't falter. I think this is really key because we will go through suffering as we've talked about time and time again. We will experience suffering in this world. And sometimes God allows that suffering to endure. And we don't always know why. We can't always know why God allows this. But what we are told in Scripture is that God watches over us in this suffering. In fact, one of God's covenant names in the Old Testament that we'll study soon is Yahweh Roi, which means God who sees me. God who sees me. God watches over his people with such a keen eye, sometimes to deliver them from their suffering, sometimes to take them out of whatever danger they're in, like we read earlier with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, delivering them through the flames and saving their lives. Sometimes, however... He doesn't deliver us and save us out of suffering immediately. He allows us to suffer. I was reading a book just recently about the martyrs 
of the Protestant Reformation in this country. And if you go down to Oxford, if you've, if you've been there, you can walk down Broad Street and outside Balliol College you'll see a little, a little cross made of bricks on the ground. And that spot marks the very place where two Christian martyrs were burned at the stake, two guys named Ridley and Latimer. Now God didn't deliver them from the pyre. He didn't deliver them from their horrible death. But he did save their faith through the flames. And sometimes that's what God is doing for us. When we go through suffering, he, he might allow us to stay in that suffering for a while. It, it's very difficult. But what he is doing is he's not taking his eyes off you. He's not letting you walk through it alone. He's going to bring good through it. And he's going to save your faith, whatever comes your way. These days of great suffering that Daniel 12 talks about, they will come to an end. We're told they will come to an end just when the power of the holy people has, has been completely shattered. It sounds very dark, doesn't it? We read that God's people shall be finally delivered. And Jesus, in Mark 13, verse 14 to 20, says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, for those who were nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there should be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And after this great tribulation that we hear of, we then read of a deliverance and a resurrection from the dead. After this great tribulation, tribulation rather, has ended. We read about those who sleep in the dust, awakening. Those who sleep in the dust. I want, I want you to think about this. Souls don't sleep in the dust, do they? It's talking about burial of bodies. It's bodies that will be raised on that day, physically. Physically, not spiritually. We won't be disembodied souls on that day when Christ returns, but you shall be raised with a physical body. I don't know at what age you will be in your new resurrected body. I don't think you'll be a baby um, because that would be difficult to arrange yourself in order before Christ, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be able to walk. I don't think you'll be a decrepit old man or woman either. Uh, so we will have bodies though. And I, I believe that these bodies will be like Jesus' body when he was resurrected. But we will have a physical body. We're told by Daniel in this vision that some will be raised to everlasting life. Everlasting life. Eternal life. While others will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. Eternal contempt. Notice that there's no getting around the force of these words. There is an eternal destiny for each individual. Some will go on to eternal life. Some will go on to eternal shame and contempt. I wonder, have you considered this truth? That this life that we're living now is just a tiny drop in the ocean of all eternity. It will be over in a flash. And then the next thing you will be consciously aware of 
in a physical sense, will be when you're raised to spend an eternity living bodily either with Christ in heaven or without him in hell. This is a really difficult but true revelation of Scripture to get our heads around. It's not one that's liked by the world, and it's not one that's liked in worldly churches, but it is the revelation of Scripture. We see this same kind of pattern from Daniel 12, written again in Revelation 20, which talks about the very end of time. The Apostle John sees this. He says from verse 11 in chapter 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A sobering passage of Scripture. You know, I always wonder why I spend so much of my days concerned about my life now. I spend so much time worrying about how I, it's dreadful, how I look. Just checking myself in the mirror. Do I look all right? You know, going out of the house, thinking about, oh, the, you know, the hedge needs a trim today. All these things are fine. But you know what? If you're like me, you spend way too much time thinking about this life and way too little time thinking about the life to come. I want for us to consider this week, church, as we go away, where are we going to spend eternity? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the fact that you will have an eternal existence? That's what the Bible teaches. And where will that be? Where will it be? Do you know? Have you thought about this? Because I believe that our lives in this world have to be lived in light of our lives in the next world. It says this, all will be raised, some to life, some to contempt. Not everyone will go to heaven. Equally, not everyone will go to hell, praise God. It's what all of us deserve, but it's not what all of us will get. It says this, those who are raised to life, they are those whose names have been written in this book. This book of life that's mentioned, I think, again in, Re in Revelation. It's a book of life. This is the first thing I want you to know about this book. It's a book of life. It's not a book of death and life. It's not a mixture. But it's the book of life. You see, in this world, I think sometimes we don't really understand how amazing heaven's going to be. Because we don't really understand what true life is like. Right? We experience in this life a mixture of life and death, don't we? From the minute we're born, in a sense, we're dying. We're getting old. Our knees, my knees anyway, start to creak. I can't walk upstairs without them cracking. Right? And I'm thinking at the age of 38, Lord, is this it now? Flipping heck. 
You know, no more football. We're experiencing from the day we're born a kind of living death. But this book of life is not a life of living death. It's a, it's a book that promises life in its fullest to every name written in there. I'm telling you now, in heaven, there's not going to be any tiredness. There's not going to be any creaky knees. There's not going to be any depression. There's not going to be any anxiety. There's not going to be any fear. It's going to be life and life to the full. That book, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that book, whoever's name is written in there, is never going to experience a dot of death again in any sense whatsoever. It's a book of life. Revelation 21 Verses 22 to 27 says this, And I, I saw no temple in the city. This is the city of God. For its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives it its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Second fact about this book, it's the Lamb's book. It belongs to an individual called the Lamb. Who is the Lamb of God prophesied in John chapter 1? We know it's Jesus Christ. This book belongs to Christ it is a love letter. It's a love book given to Christ by the Father. It contains the names of all those who trust in Christ. Every person in all of human history that was able to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, their name is written in Jesus' book. It's a list of all those who've been given to the Son by the Father. Every single name of every single saint in the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages. Can you imagine? I wonder who your name will be next to in that book. To think of it, that we as Christians might have our names written in the same book as Peter, as Paul, as John, as the Reformers. My little name in there as one of Christ's people is incredible. John 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me, that's people being given to Christ by the Father. A love gift. You know that? The church is the Father's love gift to the Son. It's wonderful. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There's never been anyone in all of human history who came to Jesus, desperate to know him, and Jesus said, away from me. That's never happened, and it never will. Christ accepts all who come to him. No matter how dark and dreadful their lives have been up to that point, he accepts every sinner, no matter the background, no matter who they are. Isn't that wonderful? The third fact about this book is that it contains names. Do you ever think of that? It contains individual names. That means that God knows his own. He knows you by name. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing's an accident in this life. Sometimes I, as a kid growing up, I used to say to my mum, Mum, why did you call me Graham? You know, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, she would, I'm sorry to embarrass you, mother. But, you know, growing up in the 90s, I was the only Graham, basically. And, and I was like, Mum, why? But it's not an accident, is it? Right? Now, 
God knows your name, brothers and sisters. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He calls you by name. Isn't that wonderful? You're not a number in a logbook. You're not going to have some number tattooed on you like you joined the army. You're known by name. He numbers the hairs on your head. Isn't that wonderful? He calls you by name, not by a number. God knows who are his own. John 10, verses 3 and 4 says, To him the gatekeeper opens, that is the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. When he's brought all his own out, he goes before them. And his sheep follow them, for they know his voice. Wow. Praise God that he knows us by name and that when he's taken us out of this world of sin, he doesn't leave us to figure out our own way, but he leads on. He shows us the way. He guides all those who are his. He calls us by name, brothers and sisters. That book has names in it. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The final thing I want to say about this book is that it's not written on the day of judgment. Did you notice that? These names aren't entered on the basis of good works. It says we're judged by what we do. The Christian will have their works weighed. They won't be judged and sent to hell on basis of them because they're saved through faith. But notice this. An account of your works isn't taken and then the names are written. That's not what it says. It says all whose names have been written, past tense, in the book shall have eternal life. They've already been written in the book before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 6 says, Even as he chose us in him, that is, the Father choosing you in Christ before when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you did or thought anything. Before you had faith or not. Your name was taken and chosen in Christ that we would be blameless sorry holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise and glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved so how might you know brothers and sisters if your name is written in this book of life how can you be sure how can we have assurance that on that day we're not going to be raised to shame and to contempt. Well, let's read from Romans again, shall we? Chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. It says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the question is, how can you have confidence that your name will be in that book? Do you believe in him? If you believe in Christ, even if it's faith as simple as the thief on the cross, Jesus, I believe in you. You can have confidence and assurance that on that day, your name will be found in that book. Again, just to read from Hippolytus, he says this, and who are they who are chosen but those who believe in the word of truth? 
so as to be made white thereby, to cast off the filth of sin and put on the heavenly, pure and glorious Holy Spirit, in order that when the bridegroom comes, they may go in immediately with him. Hallelujah. Have you believed in Christ today? Have you confessed that faith in him with your mouth or on your social media accounts? Is the work of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? Can you see a turning away from sin? Can you see that you've got a hunger to know God's word and to live by it? I think these things are all signs that we are truly saved. The Bible says we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, these are the things we can look for. Is there faith? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I know the love of God for me? Is that something the Holy Spirit's teaching me about? That I'm known, I'm loved, I'm accepted. And is there a change? Do I see a turning away from sin? Yeah, you'll still slip up. But is there a journey towards holiness in your life? These things are keys for us to know. That on that day, when we're raised, when we receive that new body... It's not going to be to contempt. It's not going to be to shame. But it's going to be to life everlasting with the Lord in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths expounded to us in this book of Daniel. We thank you, Lord God, that this life is not the end. That there's more to come. There's an eternity of history that we will spend enjoying your glory, standing in your presence and glorying in you with all the saints throughout history. God, I pray that you'd give us more and more insight into what those times will be like so as to help us endure the times we live in now. Lord, help us to understand that even in suffering, you command your angels concerning us. You're mindful of us in every day. And you know us by name. You call us by name. And you lead us on through this world. We thank you for all these truths. In Jesus' name.